Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 20. I'm your host, Otis Chirey, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of the Vesper's Bell, about abysmal abominations, weird werewolves, turbulent tomes, and cataclysmic contests. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, 
Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Sometimes good things come to those who wait. That seems to be the thought that came to Gordy, who has woken up after a very long nap and can't wait to tell what he's been dreaming about. If only Gordy hadn't woken up in a cell and was human and wasn't speaking to a group of scientists who don't seem happy with what Gordy has to tell. In our first tale from the Vespers Bell, sometimes those good things aren't good from a very different point of view. Without further ado, I present to you the Gordian Knot. Dr. Luna Valdez swallowed nervously as the elevator descended into the heavily fortified sublevels of the Dreadford facility. She was heading all the way down towards the bunker, and they didn't keep anything good down there. It was made entirely of thick, reinforced concrete and steel bulkheads, and buried under so much dirt it was impossible to get a cell or radio signal. No one was allowed down there unless absolutely necessary, and today, it seemed, she was absolutely necessary. A very large male guard by the name of Joseph Cromwell towered over her, clad in full black armor with a passive exoskeleton, meant to ease the burden of the shocking array of combat gear he carried on his person. Someone who didn't know any better could have been forgiven for mistaking Dr. Valdez for Grumwell's prisoner rather than his charge. Luna knew and trusted him well, though, and was glad that he was there to watch her back as she entered in the most secure and clandestine underground complex north of the Great Lakes. The elevator landed at the bottom of its shaft with a pronounced thud, and its doors ratcheted open. They were greeted by several more guards who initiated a series of biometric and RFID scans to confirm their identity. Once they had the all clear, Luna and her escort were ushered into some kind of surveillance room. Inside was a tall, lanky man in his fifties, his long and haggard face prematurely aged from a lifetime of smoking. Even now, his face mask was around his chin as he nervously puffed away on a cigarette. Dr. Helvig... Luna asked, recognizing the senior researcher immediately. Hey, Valdez. Sorry to have this goon drag you down here, but we have a situation, he informed her. I'm not a goon. I'm a paramilitary agent of an opaque and unaccountable globe-spanning secret organization. Thank you very much. Grumwell quipped. Luna chuckled, but Helvig only responded with an annoyed glare. Sit down, Luna, he ordered, nodding to a chair in front of the control console, and rolling his own chair to the console's edge before she could get any closer. Keep six feet back, though. I'm going to be chain-smoking until this pack's empty. You know, the six-foot rule doesn't apply to second-hand smoke. She chastised him gently as she took her seat. Second-hand smoke's a chronic risk, not acute. 
You'll be fine, he barked gruffly. Guys, it's the two-meter rule. You're supposed to use metric. You call yourselves scientists? Grumwell said with an exaggerated shake of his head. Helvig glowered at him in contempt, but didn't otherwise reprimand him. So what am I looking at? Luna asked as she examined the screen in front of her. Floating in a general-purpose supermax containment cell was an amorphous medusa head of an iridescent dark green fluid. It was a vapor at the edges of its being, but that condensed to a liquid the closer it got to its center. The fluid congealed into a ball of tightly coiled braids of various sizes, some of which flapped about loosely like frayed tentacles. Solidified shards of the same alien substance orbited around its body like the ice rings of some medusoid gas giant. The bottom of the sphere possessed a long, tail-like appendage made of several of the tentacles, and in the center of the mass there was a single elliptical orifice ringed with vivid green flames. Its ID number is on the file there, but its nickname is the Gordian Knot, or just Gordy, Helvig replied. It's been down here since the 1950s, at least. Everything before that is classified, but according to its file, it hasn't done jack but float there for the past 70 years. Then, two hours ago, it opens up that giant eye, or whatever it is, and starts asking to speak with its keeper. He tapped the play button on a screen of some earlier security footage. Keeper! Keeper! I awake, my keeper. I slumber no more. It spoke in a metallic monotone. Come and claim me, my keeper. Do not tarry. Do not dally. I am eager, my keeper. Oh, so very eager. Come claim me from this dull box, and you will see how eager I am. It's repeated variations of that phrase since it woke up, Helvick said as he hit the pause button. I've checked in with the higher-ups, and they want this on a need-to-know basis for as long as possible. I want you to conduct a psych evaluation over the intercom, and we'll decide how to proceed from there. Sorry, a psych evaluation? That thing? Luna asked incredulously. Yeah, why not? It has speech. It has observable behavior. Evaluate it. Helvig ordered. Luna aside, but didn't argue with him. She specialized in paranormal humanoids, not in Lovecraftian abominations like this. But if it could communicate, then there was the potential for some kind of analysis. Nervously clearing her throat, she pressed the button for the intercom. Hello? Can you hear me? She asked as gently as she could. The entity's stance became more rigid while maintaining the ethereal and unending circulation of its own fluid, and tilted its orifice up toward the security camera. Hello. It said, drawing the word out as long as it could, while still retaining its meaning. Thank you. My name's Dr. Luna Valdez, and I... Is my name Gordy? It asked, innocently. Luna's eyes went wide at the implications of this question but tried not to let her alarm show in her voice. 
I'm given to understand that some people here call you that, yes. She replied, but I'll call you whatever you want. My native language, if you can't even call it a language, isn't phonetic. You lack the senses to perceive my words, my names. It told her, its voice taking on a melancholic timbre. No smattering of arbitrary phonemes could even remotely approximate the meaning of my name to you. It would be degrading to even try. Perceived superiority resents need to accommodate those it views as beneath it. Luna jotted down. I'm very sorry for not being able to comprehend your language, and your use of phonetic language is greatly appreciated, she said deferentially. What phonetic name would you prefer I call you? Gordy is a silly name for an eldritch abomination. That's what they said, the entity quoted. I don't want a silly name. Prideful, fragile ego. Doesn't mind being called an eldritch abomination, though. Of course not. I'm sorry you were ever called that to begin with. Luna apologized. If it pleases you, I'll address you as Magnificent Elder One until you choose a name to your liking. Is this acceptable? I accept this, yes. Gordy replied, Narcissistic, easily flattered, suggestible when its egotism is appeased. You are most gracious, Magnificent Elder One, Luna said. You've been sleeping many years, Magnificent Elder One. Why do you wake now? I sleep to dream, and to dream so that I may see into the minds of men. Gordy answered, I have peered into the deepest subconscious of millions now, and I'm convinced that will prove an adequate representative sample for my keeper's work. There's nothing to gain by sleeping any longer. Now is the time to wake and work. I'm eager to begin. I see. You called out for your keeper when you first awoke. Could you tell me more about your keeper? Magnificent Elder One. Luna requested. Yes, more than I can tell you of myself, for he is far more alike to you than I am, Gordy replied, or the part of him which protrudes into this world is like you. He is a man, or man-shaped. He speaks and thinks in words like you, and hears words both said and thought. I do not think words, at least not as you or he does, so I spoke so that he might hear. I do not understand sound so well. It remains a very abstract, very alien thing to me. I'm not sure if he actually heard me, but you heard me, did you not? Surely he must have heard me then as well, for he is far greater than you. Does acknowledge its own limitations, seems to regard its keeper highly. Yes, magnificent Elder One. If I heard you, then surely your keeper would have as well. Luna humored it. Please, tell me more about your keeper. He summoned me here and clad the small part of me that was three-dimensional into something close to earthly matter, so that I could have a presence in this world and interact with it. He continued. He summoned me so that I might use my higher dimensional perspective to view mortal minds far more efficiently than he ever could, and gather all the information he required. Required for what? Luna asked softly. I 
Don't think I can't explain it well. I'm not as good with words as my keeper is, Gordy admitted. Each mind must be not broken, but not fixed either. Remade, maybe? Each mind must be remade. Madness, you would call it, as you are now. But once you are remade, you might understand, or you might not. It doesn't matter. But my keeper and I shall remake you as we need you to be, and your minds will all be screaming and shining, and your civilization will crumble, and your bodies will wither in your new delirium, but we do not need those. My keeper will keep your minds as he has kept me, entombed in not quite earthly matter, so that you will stay screaming and shining forever. One day, eons from now, when the stars are right, your many screaming and shining minds will be enough to lure in a... You have no words, no concept, but they're great in size and being, and your screaming, shining minds will resonate with their own, and they will try to take you into themselves so that they may become yet greater. And then all will resonate and sing in tune with the will of my keeper, and he will be the new heart. The great conglomeration of maddened minds will beat in time with him, and it will be not good, not pleasant anyway, but you will be much mightier than you are now. I'm sorry. I tried repeating the words my keeper said to me, but I don't think I said them right. When my keeper gets here, he will explain it to you, and you will agree that it is best, just as I did. Thank you, magnificent elder one. This is joyous news. Luna lied. Would you excuse me for a little while? We need to make preparations for the arrival of your keeper. Of course, Gordy said with a slight nod of its entire body. So, Gordy wants to marinate us all in madness until we're tasty enough to use his bait for some nameless cosmic horror. Helvig asked as he snuffed out his cigarette in an ashtray. And before Luna had removed her finger from the intercom button, she retracted her hand like it was red hot, hoping that the entity hadn't heard him. What's the matter with you? She asked rhetorically with a frustrated shake of her head. And yes, it sounds like it. Right now, though, all we have is its word. It could be lying, or crazy, or both. And if it's telling the truth, it sounds like it and the Keeper need each other to carry out their plan. Then right now, the priority should be keeping Gordy and his Keeper apart. Helvig pronounced as he pulled up his mask. If the Keeper is more human-like of the duo, our focus probably should be on him. I'm going to update command and security. Keep an eye on Gordy until I get back. If he leaves his cell somehow, or does anything other than float around there, pull the breach alarm immediately. Before he could even finish the word, he was pulled violently sideways by an unseen force and vanished into nothing. Oh no! Luna screamed, jumping back in her chair. Code black! Repeat, code black! Grumwell shouted into his walkie-talkie. Dr. Helvig just vanished right in front of me. I said I didn't want a silly name, Gordy said over the CCTV. Luna and Grumwell spun around to see that Helvig 
was now cowering in the corner of Gordy's cell. Holy hell. I've got my eyes on Helvig. He's in Gordy's cell, E-15. Do you copy? Grumwell asked. We copy, Grumwell. We have orders not to engage. Stay with Valdez. Over, another guard answered. Black lights began to flash. A deep klaxon began to wail, and the heavy footfalls of security personnel running by the outside of the door could be heard. Luna, what the hell just happened? It's a higher dimensional being. It can reach over three-dimensional walls as easily as you could reach over a line in the sand. Luna replied as she hit the talk button on the intercom again. Magnificent Elder One, please don't hurt him. I'm going to remake him. Remake his mind so that you can understand what awaits you, he said. It won't hurt. He will scream, but that will only be from existential horror of being transformed into a new form of being. There will be no physical pain, I promise. The shards that orbited Gordy's form moved to envelop Helvig, penetrating deeply into his body, causing him to scream and spasm in agony. Oh, never mind then. Gordy said nonchalantly. The shards levitated Helvig off the ground as he continued to convulse. He made a noise that sounded like he was trying to curse Gordy out in rage, but it only came out as a pitiful whimper. The shards burst into flames of the same green glow that ringed Gordy's singular orifice, with arcs of green lightning flickering between them. Helvig's body began to smolder and then disintegrate into black mist until there was nothing but his central nervous system left, including his horrified eyes. Gordy sucked what was left of Helvig into its orifice, its shards returning to their orbits around it. Hopefully he'll be ready by the time my keeper is here, and I can show him that I am ready as well. Gordy remarked. Sweet Jesus. Luna gasped, cupping her hands to her face in unbelieving horror. The cell's not going to hold, is it? Grumwell asked grimly. Luna shook her head emphatically. She turned the computer monitor towards her and began typing. What are you doing? I need to access the classified information on this thing. She replied. What do you mean? If Helvig didn't have clearance, then you sure won't, Grumwell said. Helvig had seniority on me, that's it. We're the same rank, but he had a hell of a lot more disciplinary issues than I do. Enough to severely curtail his access to the database. Luna explained. I'm logged in under my own credentials now. Give me a minute. As Luna read through the file, Gromwell kept a watchful vigil on Gordy through the surveillance screen. If it could grab Helvig through the walls, then it stood to reason that it could hear through them too, if it wanted to. Fortunately, that didn't seem to be the case at the moment, as Gordy was too focused on rearranging and recalibrating the base components of Helvig's mind into something more to its keeper's liking. Okay, I think I might have something. Luna announced. One of the physicists they had studying it thought that the exotic matter which makes up its three-dimensional form is only metastable, and if you pump enough energy into it, it'll destabilize and decay into baryonic matter. They were never able to test that, though, because its exterior is too resistant to energy absorption. But its interior might be more vulnerable, and now it has an opening we can use to get something inside of it. 
There were an awful lot of ifs, buts, and thinks in there, Luna. Grumwell remarked hesitantly. But if that's our best shot, fine. How do we go about pumping its insides full of energy? You know this bunker better than I do, Luna replied. What do we have down here that we can use? There's a drone with a mounted electro-laser weapon we could use as a cattle prod for. Well, that's neat to know, too. But it can deliver up to 30 megajoules to its target. You think that would do the trick? It's worth a try, Luna replied, seceding over the control chair to Grumwell. Discharge the entire battery in one shot. Guardian seems to be ignoring us for now, but if it realizes the drone's a threat to it, it'll take it and us down like insects. Understood. Grumwell nodded as he entered his credentials into the security system. Command, this is Grumwell. On Valdez's recommendation, I'm going to attempt to use the Azula drone to deliver a massive electric shock to the bogey's interior, as Valdez has reason to believe this will be lethal to it. I need you to override any security bulkheads between the drone's docking port and cell E-15, as well as open the cell door. Do you copy? Several seconds of silence trudged past before Grumwell's walkie-talkie crackled to life in response. We copy, Grumwell. You are agreeing to cut the Gordian knot. Over. The voice on the other end replied. Copy that, Command. Over. Grumwell nodded. Within seconds, the drone piloting program was opened on his monitor, its multiple camera feeds and sensor readings available at a glance. Taking a firm grasp of the unit's control stick, he took off and began flying the weaponized quadcopter down the Spartan corridors toward his target. Jay, Gordian's not facing toward the door, and I don't think there's enough space in between it and the wall to get the drone in, Luna said, anxiously staring up at the security feed. Yeah, I see that, Grumwell acknowledged. You want to try talking to it again? See if you can get it to turn around? Sure, she said quietly as she reached for the intercom, her voice almost utterly devoid of confidence. Excuse, uh, excuse me, magnificent elder one. Can you please tell me how Dr. Helvig is doing? He is screaming, Gordy replied atonally. He's not shining yet, but he shall soon. Wonderful, Luna nodded, her voice wavering, a tear falling down her cheek. He may have been a douche, but he didn't deserve that. Uh, the room you're in now isn't big enough for you to meet with your keeper in. Don't you think, Magnificent Elder One? There was a pause, as Gordy seemed to consider her words. I had not thought, no, it answered. But it is smaller than the space where he first summoned me. Perhaps he would need more space. Yes, I should look for more space. Gordy slowly spun around, its radiant orifice now facing the door. If it noticed that the door was open now, it was utterly indifferent to it. It stretched out its tail tentacles and pulled itself forward in a manner akin to an octopus moving across a tide pool, except that its tentacles weren't actually making contact with anything. The fluid of its being quivered now, possibly in agitation, producing an unnaturally low rumble as it did so. It passed into the corridor, its splayed appendages casually ghosting through the walls. 
Luna was terrified that Gordy would simply vanish, unconfined to three-dimensional space as it was. But it seemed sincere in its attempt to find a bigger room to greet its keeper in. It jerkily perambulated down the hall, glancing slightly from left to right as it did so, seeming to inspect the rooms through the walls as it did so. It didn't stop or even flinch when the drone rounded the corner, apparently regarding it as a completely innocuous resident of the facility. Grumwell did not waste his one shot, pulling the trigger as soon as Gordy's eye was within his sights. In an instant, a laser beam ionized the air along its path into conductive plasma, delivering megawatts of electricity directly to the center of Gordy's three-dimensional form. Gordy showed no reaction at first. It merely levitated in place, tentacles wafting like kelp in a gentle current, seemingly unaffected and unconcerned by the massive electric discharge. But then, Luna and Grumwell saw that Gordy was starting to vibrate, and that vibration was intensifying. Harder and harder, the knotted orb shook, emitting reverberating shock waves that shook the walls around it as it did so, until it instantaneously imploded inwards on itself in a single ear-splitting crunch. Every iota of Gordy's three-dimensional form was gone, though it presumably still existed on its own plane of existence. The only trace that it had ever existed in our reality at all was the mutilated central nervous system of Dr. Helvig's lying helplessly on the hard concrete floor like a beached whale. It had been coated in something green, or transformed into something green, or used as a mold for something green. Whatever that green thing was now, it was alive and aware. It wriggled and writhed, and visibly beat with some kind of a pulse, glowing faintly in a sickly green light, and somehow producing a high-pitched screech that rang through the air like a police siren, shining and screaming. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
I hope you enjoyed the Gordian Knot by the Vespers Bell, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale, and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash vesper. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash vesper, spelled V-E-S-P-E-R. You'll be redirected to their profile on our horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com, where you'll find their biography and a collection of more of their works available absolutely free, along with links to their social media, including their official subreddit, r slash the Vespers Bell, all one word. Finally, you'll find links to them on Amazon and to their excellent debut anthology available now, entitled The Harrowick Chronicles, Volume 1 the first of several collections of their stories. The Vespers Bell first foray into print publishing presents a macabre novel-length compilation of 24 original short works of the bizarre and the unbelievable, beginning with the seminal seven-part serial Hallowed Ground. In the feature-length tale Hallowed Ground, A young woman's attempt to find some peace and quiet in an abandoned cemetery goes horribly awry come All Hallows' Eve, when apparitions from the depths of the underworld rise up and claim the soul of her friend. But our heroine isn't one to let dead things lie, and soon sets out on a quest to master all things occult, a journey that inevitably leads her to challenge the Queen of the Dead herself. The story doesn't stop there, though. The Heroic Chronicles brings you another 17 ghastly tales to recount more paranormal and petrifying adventures from the borders of Heroic County and beyond. From several serial killer siblings to cerebrospinal psychopaths to unseen specters spun from primeval darkness itself, and much, much more. So prepare yourself, reader, to enter the surreal and sinister otherworld that is the Heroic Chronicles. And don't delay, pick up your copy today via the link at creepypastastories.com. When you do, a portion of your purchase will come back to help us fund this very show. Oh, and if you do decide to stop by the Vesper Bell's Amazon page, or his profile and many stories, wherever you find them, Please, don't forget to leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him on this show and that me, Otis, sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Now, regarding our first story of the evening, while Gordy himself may be gone, it isn't the end for the facility he was living in. The Vesper's Bell has more in store with further readings from the Dreadford file. In the meantime, Dr. Helvig has been feeling better lately and has put out a new single on iTunes. It's a little repetitive, but every reviewer says the track really shines. <laughs> for our second tale from the Vesper's Bell for the evening... We leave behind the realm of the modern, of things beyond our dimensional understanding, and go back to a world where things are simpler. Frontier is a dangerous place. Magic is commonplace. 
and men and women occasionally turn into mindless beasts intent on ripping their prey to shreds. Well, maybe not that simple, really, but our Mr. Thoroughgood, our trip to Fogg's dwelling, uh, he goes there to quell a dangerous menace, and it might not be as simple a task as he hopes it will be. Without further ado, I present to you The Were-Witch of Howling Wood. After several days and hundreds of miles of traveling by stagecoach, Thoroughgood had finally arrived at his long-dreaded destination of Fogg's Dwelling. It was a drab, inauspicious little frontier town built upon the very edges of the Howling Woods, a fabled old-growth forest that had stood as the northernmost border of the realm for time immemorial. Thoroughgood was awed by his first sight of that mythically primeval forest, as it was comprised of some of the tallest pine trees known to exist. They seemed as tall as the hills themselves, reaching up toward the clouds, and they had grown together so tightly that from a distance, at least, they appeared to have formed a nigh-impenetrable border between the civilized realm of Whittakire and the primeval savagery beyond. It was a border that the folk of Fog's dwelling had dared to challenge, though, or rather, the Grand Priestess had dared to challenge it, and the poor folk she had sent to settle the region had not dared to challenge her. The Howling Woods were too rich with timber to be ignored any longer especially when the oracles had divined that the revenants of the forsaken coast were growing in number. A great fleet of warships was required to deter and defend against any potential invasion from the east. Funny how the prophecies of the oracles always seemed to support the Grand Priestess's agenda, Thurgood mused. As a result of the dangers posed by the ancient forest, Fogg's dwelling was built more like a military fort than a town, with the entire perimeter encircled by a wall of thick logs with sharpened ends. A gallery ran the entire circumference of the interior so that guards could keep watch, though at night all they could hope to see was the eye shine of lurking predators. The only way in was a dual set of reinforced gates that faced away from the forest and toward the wide stretch of empty moorland that separated them from the rest of the realm. Those gates had only opened for Thurgood's stagecoach after the guards had confirmed an all-clear and had slammed shut the instant they were through. The town itself lacked any stone buildings at all, with everything being entirely made of wood from the forest. Thurgood supposed that made sense, since they would have had a surplus of the latter and a near-total deficit of the former. It did seem a fire hazard, though, especially since they were clustered so tightly together, but presumably the cold and damp climate helped with that. The stagecoach rolled to a stop in front of the Foggy Lantern Tavern, where Thurgood would be lodging during his stay in Fogg's dwelling. He tipped the porter and bid his farewell to the coachman as he headed inside the tavern, hoping that his contact was waiting for him inside as he had promised. His entrance into the tavern didn't go unnoticed. Dressed in a brocade frock coat and a silk cravat, his fair blonde hair tied back in a ponytail 
with a satin ribbon, he stood out like an unhammered nail amidst the rustic, working-class patrons. Thoroughgood. A deep voice called out to him from the back corner of the room. Sitting there was a tall, broad-shouldered, barrel-chested man with a thick black beard. Ah, yes, hello. I'm Royal Scholar Odidius Thoroughgood of Evanhill, here on behalf of Her Eminence's Hallowed Society for Thaumaturgy, Alchemy, and Natural Philosophy. You must be Mr. Faxton. Delighted to make your acquaintance. Thoroughgood said cordially, greeting him with a curt bow. Rather than get up from his seat and return the bow, Faxton stuck out his hand. Thoroughgood hesitated for just a moment, but considering that his assignment required Faxton's cooperation, not to mention his significant size advantage, Thoroughgood capitulated and shook the man's hand. Have this seat, young man. Faxton said, his gruff voice making it sound more like an order than invitation. Thoroughgood complied once more, wiping his hand off with his handkerchief as discreetly as he could. The rickety table shook slightly as a barmaid plopped a wooden tankard of ale down in front of him. Thoroughgood noticed that the woman's bare arms were tattooed, and though he had only glanced at them briefly, he had thought that they looked thaumaturgical in nature. Magical tattoos on a serving girl would certainly have been unusual, and he attempted to call her back so that he could get a better look. Uh, miss? Miss? Could I actually get a... Whatever fancy wine you're hankering for, we ain't got it. We only got what we can brew, and this isn't exactly vineyard country. It's beer or nothing, Faxton informed him. Thoroughgood gave a resigned nod and took a reluctant sip of the ale, deciding to leave the mystery of the tattoos for later. So you've come all the way out here just to get a look-see at a real live lycanthrope up close, have you? Did I say that right, lycanthrope? That's the fancy name you types like to call him, isn't it? Yes, that's correct, Mr. Faxton. But I'm fine with calling them turnskins or whatever else you prefer. Thurgood nodded. As discussed in our letters, Her Eminence is increasingly concerned about the steady rise in lichen attacks along the frontier. She's concerned about her timber supply, and that's about it. Faxton scoffed. We're pushing harder into their territory, and they're pushing back harder. Doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to understand that, does it? Yes, clearly the increase in the population along the frontier, as well as the expansion of the frontier deeper into the Howling Woods, is a factor in the increase in lichen attacks. Thoroughgood conceded. But the frequency and number of these attacks are still excessive based on our prior surveys of the lycanthrope population. Her Eminence's main concern, one which I share, and the one I've come to investigate is that the lichens are breeding. Faxton let out a hearty belly laugh, slapping his palm onto the table so hard it nearly toppled over, sending ale sloshing everywhere. Breeding? How would that work? The turnskins are all outlaws who ran off into the howling woods, he said. Well, Mr. Faxton, there are women outlaws, and seeing as how most of their male compatriots would hardly have been gentlemen even before being turned into literal wolves. Mating seems an inevitability, Thurgood answered. Mating, sure, I'll grant you that. But not breeding, 
Faxton said. I may not be as learned as yourself, Mr. Thurgood, but I do know that you can't breed a mule. If a cross between a horse and a donkey is sterile, then surely a wolfman won't have to worry about feeding a litter of pups. That's a valid observation, and it may well turn out to be the case. But if the lycanthropes are breeding, it's of the utmost importance that we uncover the truth, Thurgood insisted. He leaned in now, so that he might speak a little quieter. A plague of lycanthropy has always been a terrifying possibility if a remote one. Contagions that spread slowly through the sharing of body fluids do so slowly, especially when the infected are unable to pass for uninfected. No one's ever caught lycanthropy from a courtesan. I can assure you, the shunning of lichens to the wilderness or culling their numbers has always been sufficient to control outbreaks. But if they're breeding and passing on their lycanthropy to offspring, then that presents the possibility for exponential population growth and with it the capacity to utterly overwhelm our defenses. All of Whittakire could either be slaughtered or turned in an unspeakably short period of time. If they are breeding, then we must know and begin preparations for a full-on extermination immediately before it's too late. According to your letters, you've located a den, is that correct? It is, Faxton noted. It's around nine miles into the forest. They're nocturnal, so the woods are safe enough to travel by day. But sticking your head inside a lichen's den just to see if they've got a fresh litter still sounds like suicide to me. That it might be, but it's a risk I have to take to find the truth, Thurgood agreed, taking another slow, though clearly not savory, sip from the tankard. Tell me, Mr. Faxton, if you know where this den is, why have you never tried to wipe them out? Faxton chuckled dismissively at the suggestion. Have you ever actually seen a turnskin, Mr. Thurgood? He asked. Well, there are taxidermized specimens in the hollow. So no, then. He cut him off. Well, I and everyone else in this town have seen them. Usually far closer than we'd like to. We see them skulking in the trees, eyes glowing in the dark, waiting for us to let our guard down and pick one of us off. We hear them howling, sometimes from miles away, sometimes from right outside the town wall, and on more than one occasion from inside them. They're bigger, faster, and stronger than any man, even me, and their hides are thick. Silver bullets work, but as a poison, it's a slow death, and they could still do quite a bit of damage before they keel over. If the entire town were to march to the den and take on the whole pack of their turf, it would be a massacre. Even if we succeeded, it would be with half of us dead and half of the survivors turned, which the other half would then have to deal with. So what would be the bleeding point? fight a turnskin, you don't just risk death, you risk becoming a turnskin and perpetuating the cycle yourself, which is why we only ever fight them when we have to. The Grand Priestess is mad if she thinks that an extermination effort would have a chance in hell at working. We need to withdraw from the frontier altogether, treat the Moors as a no-man's land, and the turnskins will be contained to the howling woods just like they always have been. 
which would be a perfectly viable option were it not for our pressing need for timber, Thorogood reminded him. Faxton sighed in what would have seemed like resignation, were it not for the sudden look of pity in his eyes. We'll see if you still feel that way tomorrow, he said forebodingly. I suggest you turn in early, Mr. Thorogood. We set out for the den at first light. The next morning, it was clear why Faxton had said first light and not sunrise, as the perpetually foggy and overcast weather rendered the sun little more than a myth. The gray damp fog was so thick, thoroughgoods couldn't even see the tops of the trees, let alone the sky. Both men were dressed in long leather coats, tall boots, and wide-brimmed hats as they ventured beyond the relative safety of the town walls. Each carried a silver-tipped cutlass at their hips and a torch-topped walking stick in their hand. Multiple flintlocks loaded with silver bullets were slung upon their bandoliers, and Faxton had a large blunderbuss hoisted over his shoulder. Thorogood would have preferred a more sizable retinue for his escort, but even if he could have spared the gold, Fogg's dwelling couldn't spare the men. On such a dangerous frontier, a community needed every able body it had to ensure its survival, and they were already none too happy about Faxon having to risk his life just to satisfy the Grand Priestess's curiosity. Remember, stay alert. If any turnskins are prowling the howling at this time of day, between the trees and the fog, we'll hear them long before we see them. Faxon cautioned as he took their first steps across the tree line officially leaving civilization behind them. The good news is that they don't hunt men for food unless they're starving, and if they see we're armed, they won't even risk confrontation without the advantage of numbers on their side. We shouldn't have to worry about that until we reach the den. Stay as quiet as you can, and whatever you do, don't leave my sight. If we get separated, it's a hundred to one shot you'll find your way back out before dark. Thorogood didn't doubt it. All the giant trees looked more or less the same to him, and the canopy would have made navigating by the stars or sun impossible if the unyielding clouds hadn't done so already. The terrain, at least, was manageable enough, since the howling woods had very little undergrowth. The great pines had greedily kept all the sun, water, and soil for themselves, leaving precious little for anything else. A thick carpet of dead brown needles was mostly all that covered the forest floor. It was also eerily quiet. They hadn't been walking more than a quarter of an hour before the sheer silence of it had Thurgood thoroughly unsettled. I must say, this forest is rather more desolate than I was expecting, he remarked. You say the lichens only eat men when they're starving. From what I've seen so far, that can't be that uncommon of an occurrence. There's elk and the like that feed on tree bark, and anything else that does manage to sprout up. Grazing beasts out on the moors. Turnskins can easily travel over a hundred miles a night in search of prey. Faxton informed him, not bothering to turn around. And their skilled hunters with keen senses, capable of picking up the slightest of trails or smelling prey from miles away. They know how to survive in their own woods, don't you fret? You almost sound like you admire them, Thorogood remarked. I respect them as apex predators. We're the invaders here, 
looking to chop down their trees to make warships so that we can invade somewhere else. They're just trying to survive, and you can't deny they're very good at that, Faxton replied. He sounded far less respectful when we were discussing the prospect of taking on an entire pack of them, Thorogood reminded him. Last night you made it sound like they were monsters. I was trying to scare you, hoping you'd realize what a fool's errand this was and head back from where you came from, Faxton told him. Everything's a monster from something's point of view. These trees are monsters to the plants, trying to struggle and survive while they hoard most of the available resources. That doesn't make the trees evil or mean. They have no right to exist. Enough talk. Footsteps might go ignored or unrecognized by the turnskins, but our voices won't. Don't say anything unless it's of vital importance. Thorogood nodded, even though Faxton was facing away from him, and they made the rest of their trek in silence. It wasn't until they'd been hiking for nearly three hours that the eerie and near-absolute quiet was finally broken. A long, bayful howl pierced through the air, seeming to shake the floating droplets of fog as it did so. Thorogood had heard wolf howls before, but this was obviously no wolf howl. It was deeper, more guttural, and more resonant, like the creature that made it was significantly larger than a wolf. The howling was also coming from above them, and Thorogood had yet to meet a wolf that could climb a tree. He froze in his tracks as his heart nearly froze in his chest. He looked to Faxton for instruction, who held up a finger to urge him to remain silent. To Thorogood's utter dismay, Faxton then cupped his hands to his mouth and produced a howl of his own, a perfect mimic of the one that had come from the treetops. The fog cloak lichen let out a much shorter howl in response, and Thorogood heard it leaping through the canopy boughs away from them. We can talk now. They know we're here. Talking won't make any difference, Faxton said. Why aren't they attacking? Thorogood demanded in a whispered tone that was too loud to actually be considered a whisper, fumbling to draw one of the pistols. I told you they only eat men when they're starving. They won't attack unless they think we're a threat, so put that damn thing away, Faxton ordered. The den's dead ahead. Keep your voice calm and low, and don't make any sudden threatening movements. Thorogood didn't need Faxton's woodcraft to tell them they were close to the den, Bones of various creatures were strewn about the forest floor, all of them picked clean of flesh, with the larger ones broken and sucked dry of marrow. The bark of the trees had been furiously scratched in some sort of territorial display. The smell of death hung heavily in the air. As they marched forward, shapes began appearing in the fog, far too small to be pine trees, but at the same time far too large to be lichens. Peering harder into the mist, he saw they were monoliths, ancient monoliths, weather-worn and moss-covered, with deep curvilinear runes etched into them. They were twelve feet tall, semi-ellipsoid in shape, and had hexagonal holes chiseled into their top ends. They formed a ring a hundred feet across, and the ground within was a shallow depression, twelve feet deep. In the center of the ring was a large hexagonal stone slab, 
one that looked suspiciously like a sacrificial altar. What the bloody hell is this? Thurgood demanded as he grabbed Faxton by the arm. It's the den, see? He pointed to the opposite end of the pit, where a wide tunnel had been dug into the ground, framed with branches and large stone. The den is inside an ancient Ophionic megalith that's inexplicably in the middle of the howling woods. You didn't think that was worth mentioning? Thorgood cried. I didn't, honestly. It's an old country. There are ruins all over the place. Some are bound to have some squatters. Baxton shrugged. So now that you see it for yourself, what's the plan? I'm afraid I haven't been entirely forthright with you, Mr. Faxton. Thorgood sighed as he unslung his rucksack. Obviously, no one in their right mind would expect to be able to walk into a den full of live lichens and survive. That's why I brought this. Carefully unwrapped a small ceramic grenade with a silvery wick sticking out of the top. This is filled with a solution of silver nitrate. When it explodes, the solution will instantly vaporize into a gas that will be highly toxic to lichens, especially when they're all confined to their den like that. The gas will immediately get into their eyes, nose, and throat, causing incapacitating pain, occluded vision and smell, impaired breathing, and eventually suffocation. Once they're dead, we survey the bodies, and ideally drag one back with us if we can manage it. Faxton stoically glowered down at the small explosive, his expression cold and stern, but otherwise unreadable. So, that's the priestess's plan for exterminating the turnskins, then, is it? He asked. Find their dens and then gas them to death in their sleep? Set it for yourself, Faxton. Any sort of honorable warfare favors the lichens. Those they don't kill, they turn. What choice do we have? To leave them be, Faxton replied quietly. If that's what you came here to do, then get on with it. I'll watch your arse from up here, but that's it. I'm not doing the priestess's dirty work. Thurgood nodded understandingly and made his descent into the stone ring. Once he was down, he first lit the torch on top of his walking stick and then very cautiously approached the den. Unlike the surrounding area, the circle itself had been kept meticulously clean, almost as if the lichens had some concept of its sanctity. Thorogood quickly dismissed the notion, deciding that they simply had some instinctual drive to keep the entrance to the den clean of anything that might attract scavengers. It came to a complete stop when he reached the den's entrance, peering into it in a vain attempt to try to get a sense of its internal dimensions. The entrance was a black abyss, though, and Thorogood had no way of knowing how deep the lichens were, or even if there were multiple tunnels. It was possible that just tossing the grenade into the den wouldn't be enough to kill all of them. If he tried going in himself, though, he would almost certainly be ambushed and killed before he ever had a chance to light it. Accepting it as the least risky option Thorogood lit the grenade and threw it as hard as he could into the den. To his surprise, he heard it shatter against something solid before igniting. Plumes of smoke rising out of the entrance proved that the den couldn't have been very deep, and yet he didn't hear a single lichen 
howling in pain, nor did any come running out of the den. Perplexed, he cautiously moved through the thinning smoke and dared to enter the den, holding his torch as far out from him as he could. He hadn't gone more than a few steps when he saw what the grenade had smashed into. It was a door, a wide wooden door clearly made from the pine trees that surrounded them, but undeniably much younger than the stone circle above them. He tried to open it, but found it was barred from the other side. Faxton! Thurgood shouted as he ran back into the stone circle. Mr. Faxton, there appears to be some sort of a... of... of... He trailed off, his attention suddenly stolen by the sight of over a dozen lichens standing around the perimeter of the circle, staring down at him. They were nearly seven feet tall when they stood to their full height, though many of them were hunched, stooped, or crouched in all fours. They were lean and muscular, with unretractable claws on digitigrade feet and long splayed hands. Their dark coarse fur was black, brown, gray, and even auburn, and their hungry eyes shone either red, gold, or green. Their snouts were short and their teeth were long, longer and sharper than that of any natural creature that dwelt in those woods. Thurgood turned, and standing over the den's entrance where he had emerged, there was a woman with a wild mane of swept-back raven hair and the same amber eyes that some of the lichens had. Her sun-brown skin was colored in dark green tattoos that mimicked the curvilinear runes of the megalith. And Thurgood realized those were the same tattoos he'd seen on the barmaid the previous night. She was naked, save for a gold talisman around her neck, bearing the triple crescent moon icon of the coven hood. She was also filthy, with hips that were so wide and breasts that were so large and pendulous, they looked more like they belonged on some ancient fertility idol than a living woman. Her lips twisted upwards in a snarl, bearing an inhuman set of carnivorous teeth. She had a lichen knelt to either side of her, and she rested her hands upon their heads as if they were common dogs. The scene was so horrifying and so surreal, he didn't notice Faxton standing beside them until he spoke. I'm afraid I wasn't entirely forthright with you either, Mr. Thurgood. He said, his blunderbuss at the ready, to put Thurgood down in an instant should he have the need. What the bloody hell is this? Thurgood demanded. And who is she? My name is Limestra, and I'm the den mother of this pack of lichens. She said in a voice that had an unnatural yet feral timber to it. Before that, I was a witch, so I guess that makes me a werewitch then, doesn't it? Nope. Were means man. A werewitch would be a warlock, Thurgood said sardonically. If he was going to die, he might as well die correcting people's entomological errors. What the devil do you mean, den mother? I was banished from the sisterhood for my numerous unorthodoxies, and like many outcasts, I fled to the howling woods to escape the law. She replied listlessly, scratching her rubenesque belly with her wolf-like claws. I knew I couldn't survive for long on my own, so I used my talents at Theriomancy to persuade a pack of lichens to take me in. When my sisters rejected me, 
These creatures took me in as one of their own. I knew that it would only be a matter of time before I became infected myself, and, not wanting to completely lose my human faculties, I set to work designing these. She gestured to the thaumaturgical tattoos that covered much of her body. These let me shift between forms at will, and while I admit I'm certainly a little more primal than I used to be, I'm still by far the smartest looking throat in these woods. With the mind of a woman, the magic of a witch, and now the strength of a lichen, this forest is my domain. When the Grand Priestess sent your people to invade my woods, my first impulse was to destroy them. However, as I spied upon them from the woods and plotted my next move, I realized that they too were outcasts and hated the Grand Priestess as much as I did. They weren't invaders, they were refugees. So I decided to be a magnanimous queen and extend an offer of amnesty instead. Amnesty, Thorogood asked. Her tattoos. She taught us how to make them. Let us keep our human minds in human forms, but be able to change skins when need be, Faxton explained. Fog's dwelling and all its people now recognize Lymestra is our sovereign, and we won't hesitate to use the gifts she's given us to defend her woods. Any invaders who surrender can either retreat or receive the ink themselves, but those who don't will either be slaughtered or join our ranks as traditional wolf-minded lichens. And if the Grand Priestess still won't relent, then I'll send my people to covertly spread lycanthropy throughout her realm and bring it down from the inside, returning all of Whittakire to a state of primeval nature, Limester added. You, Mr. Thurgood, who came here to cowardly murder us in our sleep, you will now join our pack without the benefit of my tattoos to make up for your treachery, if you survive the transformation, of course. Some of the lichens began growling and slowly crawled down into the ring. Thurgood pulled out a pistol and tried to shoot, only to find that Faxton hadn't loaded his guns. Didn't have to be this way, Thurgood, Faxton lamented. You could have walked away. Thurgood didn't seem to be feeling especially repentant, however, refusing to forsake the cause he had sworn his life to. The guns may have been useless, but the cutlass was real. Throwing his walking stick to the ground and drawing his sword, he charged for the lichens standing ahead of him, ready to strike them down with his silver blade. Never got the chance, though as he was pounced on from behind and knocked to the ground, the lycanthrope wasting no time in digging its teeth into his shoulder. And as he screamed in pain, the entire pack howled in celebration of his infection. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
I hope you enjoyed The Were-Witch of Howling Wood by the Vesper's Bell, as performed by yours truly. It's nice to meet new friends, wouldn't you say? And it looks like Mr. Thurgood is going to see that his new friends aren't as bad as he thought they would be. At least now they'll have things in common, like what are the best flavor repellents? If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash vesper. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash vesper, spelled V-E-S-P-E-R. That'll take you to their profile on our horror fiction site, creepypastastories.com where, once again, you'll be able to find links to other stories by this author if you wish to seek out the weird, the diabolical, and the things that lie just beyond the edge of your vision, as well as a means of contacting them, following them on social media, or, if you're feeling so inclined, buying their debut anthology full of nearly two dozen amazing stories. As a reminder... If you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program and that me, Otis Chiry, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure the Vespers Bell would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go... I'd like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. And leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky, and get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. 
Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at Otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.